Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Donald Trump's victory triggered a sell-off in global bonds and emerging market assets while the dollar rose. Now we're seeing some of those post-election moves scale back as investors assess whether they're overreacting to Trump's victory. Now for more, we're very pleased to welcome Alex Salmon. He is the former first minister of Scotland. Good morning. morning. Uh, Holger Schmieding, chief economist at Berenberg, also joins us. Holger, thank you for joining us. Alex, let me start off with you, Mm. right? What does a Donald Trump victory mean to you? Is this the the end of austerity? Is this actually inequality? How do you explain it? Because if you can explain it, it means that he has a clear mandate to do what exactly? Well, I, I don't think AMD knows. Uh, I mean, obviously, the campaign rhetoric uh, uh, employed by uh, uh, the Donald is uh, very frightening to lots of people, to, to Mexican, to Muslims, perhaps to gays, to minorities. And you see some of that reaction. It's not just disappointment, uh, there's fear in that reaction. In more international terms, then uh, I think it's a balance between uh, an expansionary domestic policy in the economy, but also the threat of protectionism, which uh, in international uh, affairs and trade. Now, I mean, there are a few things which are absolutely cast iron laws in economics, but one of them is that protectionism makes everybody poorer. The less international trade you have, the less freedom of trade you have, the more poor, the more poor people and become. And yet, this is where the world is going. Well, there's a lot of protectionist forces. I mean, it's, uh, it's one of the, the natural populist instincts, and it's usually the job of politicians to resist that populist instinct for the greater good. Uh, but uh, so you've got the balance between uh, an expansionary policy to restore the, the broken infrastructure of the, of the United States on the one hand, uh, but the looming threat of protectionism, which certainly will absolutely make everybody poorer, including the, uh, the, the dispossessed, the disappointed uh, of the United States who Donald Trump was meant to be appealing to. Alex, help me here with my observation that London has barely been affected by Brexit. How is Brexit, the initial days here, the initial weeks, how has it affected Scotland? Well, there hasn't been a, a dramatic effect, but of course, you know, that's one in London, so right. uh, it's a bit like jumping off the post office tower and halfway down saying, well, we're all right so far. <laughs> you haven't hit the ground yet. There hasn't been a Brexit. In Scotland, right. it would be jumping off the Scott Monument yeah. in Edinburgh, being halfway down and saying, mm-hmm. we're all right so far. So, so we don't know. Uh, I mean, the difficulty, I think, uh, that is looming in the economy is there's a growing realisation that the UK government doesn't know either. Uh, and the, the, the indication no. that there's no clear strategy will affect real economic and, failure. And Francine, that sets us up for our next segment on Brexit. But really, it today does. to me is almost currency dynamics. Yeah, it's currency dynamics. It's also, again, to access point, you know, about protectionism. If you're in Europe, and Holger, I know you've held the view, the, the German view, for, for quite some time, right? And Angela Merkel has been the beacon of stability for 11 years. How does she fight this current wave of populism, which brings a, a, a lot of things with it? How we cope with immigration, how we cope with trade deals, how we cope with open borders. 
First of all, I fully agree with what we just heard. Protectionism is the real risk here. So far, policymakers around the Western world have held the line. We have not had an increase in protectionism yet, but now with the Brexit vote and Donald Trump, there is a risk of protectionism writhing. The German position is very clear. Germany did the hard labor market reforms 10, 12 years ago. As a result, it has record employment. It has a strong domestic situation. Yeah. And as a result, populists in Germany are right. at around 15, 14 percent. They are not close to anywhere where they are in the UK right. or the US. But Holger, very, I mean, very, you know, clearly we spoke to a couple of the Trump advisors, David Malpass, Mr. Navarro, and Peter Navarro was very clear. He believes that any country with a surplus, and he mentioned Germany, he talked about China, any country with a surplus is cheating America in trade deals. That is just wrong economics, period. Simply wrong any sort of uh, second-year student of economics or first-year student of economics should know that is wrong. If you look at the German data, what you see is it's pensions wrong, are rising 4%, government spending is rising 4% year over year, private right. consumption is fairly strong. You cannot simply accuse the Germans okay. of underspending. Wrong. All right, we have... Sorry, Alex, I need I to interrupt. Say, it was worked out some time ago. Alex, by... hold that thought, because sure. we're just getting the former French finance minister, Emmanuel Macron, who's just said he's <laughs> running uh, for president. Now, we're seeing live pictures from Bobigny. Uh, Tom, this is north of Paris. I think it's about 45 minutes from Paris. Uh, we had covered him extensively when he's talking about reforms. Again, remember, <clears throat> there's a presidential election. <clears throat> I'm losing my voice, Tom, but there's a presidential election in France next year. The markets need to decide whether they believe the polls. There is certainly someone uh, from the far right, who's Marine Le Pen, who is much more palatable than her father ever was, uh, but with anti-Europe stance, anti-immigration stance. Uh, Macron is not from that camp. He's very young. He's about 39 years old. it's a crowded field is the answer. It's a crowded field of where Macron wants to be, right? He's a socialist. So if you look at the left, it's a crowded field. Let's rip up the script right now. We see this, this important moment for France. Alex Salmon, you've seen this before, and it's almost a new populism. Did Mr. Trump, and frankly other elections, did they change the traditional calculus of voting? across Europe? Well, I, th I think it'd be, uh, it'd be very adventurous after Brexit and after Trump to, to state that uh, Marie Le Pen is not going to have a chance of winning the French presidential right. election. However, you would say that the electoral system in France kind of mitigates against it because they have a knockout system which mm -hmm. goes to a runoff. In other words, you couldn't, for example, win a presidential election in France without winning the popular vote like Mr Trump did. I could also say that, you know, Scotland's quite interesting here. <coughs> Scotland is a, a country where the insurgent party, the SNP, the one who's become dominant, is actually a very progressive uh, right. uh, party, in, both in terms of international trade but in terms of domestic politics. So it's not a given that parties which are against the establishment have to be uh, protectionist in terms of their attitude to the world or, for that matter, right. divisive but you had against your referendum. domestic policy. Right, you had your referendum that settled it. Yeah, well, Last but, year. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, since it was two years ago, but since then, two years ago. you know, the SNP's won 56 out of 59 right. Westminster seats in the, uh, in, the, in the elections, and the SNP have been returning in the domestic elections. Yeah, I'd just like to emphasize one point here. If we look at France, we find that among the most popular politicians in that country, on the centre-right, Juppé, a reformer, Fillon, a reformer. On the centre-left, Macron, Valls, an economic reformer. So while there's a lot of talk about Le Pen and there is a tail risk, the real interesting right. thing in France is reformers are actually By popular. reform, do you, but, do you mean a more Anglo-Saxon model? I mean a more Angela Merkel a a more model Anglo -Merkel of economic like reforms that. and stability. Okay, but, An but hold on. 
Am I, can, I, can I steal that phrase? You can totally yeah. steal okay. it. With royalties. So you have to pay a premium to Holger every time uh, you use it. I think we're also seeing live pictures of Marine Le Pen, who's actually rebranded her movement and doesn't want to be called Marine Le Pen anymore. She wants to be called Marine the Problem, Holger. And then I'll ask Alex the same thing. She's opening her headquarters in Paris there, Tom. Is that Alain Juppé has been around forever, yeah. right? He's been in politics for, what, 60 years? Yes. And so if, if you see a wave of people wanting something new, then he's a favorite currently, but he may not be the right person. Well, actually, he would be, because he, when he was prime minister, he was the one who actually instituted reforms, and then it was his president, Chirac, who did not back him up against street protests. But, so his record is that he actually wants to persevere, wants to do reforms, mm -hmm. and if president, he would. Alex, well, that's a reasonable point, but remember, and it's, this supports it, that in France, by definition, you come up against the strongest candidate. Because of the knockout system, yeah. Le Pen will face the strongest alternative candidate. Uh, arguably, yeah. that didn't happen in the United States. Right. I mean, it, it reminds me of 2002. I was covering the uh, French elections then, uh, Tom, and her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, um, you know, came out of nowhere to that second round of the presidential elections. Always driving the conversation in international relations is without question the gentleman who invented it uh, out of the Washington consensus. Joseph Nye, of course, at the Harvard Kennedy School. His power in interdependence is the iconic uh, text. Professor Nye, wonderful to have you with us. How do you define Trump foreign policy? Well, Tom, it's early. <clears throat> we don't know, uh, based on the campaign, which of the contradictory statements is going to be operational. <clears throat> but uh, I would say on security policy, he's more likely to stay uh, on course. On trade policy, I think you're going to have radical changes, the end of TPP <clears throat> and TTIP and so forth. So a mixed bag and still unpredictable. Right. The backdrop from your wonderful monograph of a year ago, your smaller size book, which, is, which I claimed was a must read, and your reaffirmation in Project Syndicate the other day is on your optimism on the nation. Let's go to the quote, call it my morning must read for this morning. This from Professor uh, Nye, and it's real simple. We oscillate between triumphalism and declinism. The U.S. is not in decline. Finally, Professor Nye goes on to say there is Russia a country in decline. Mr. Trump is correct to avoid the complete isolation of Russia with which we have overlapping interests. No one could gain from a Cold War. Professor Nye, how should Mr. Trump uh, discuss, act, and uh, behave with Mr. Putin? Well, he's got a double task. One is he doesn't want to undercut the <clears throat> sanctions which tell Putin that you can't steal your neighbor's territory by force, as he did with uh, Ukraine. On the other hand, we do have business to do with the Russians, uh, Iran, Afghanistan, North Korea, uh, the Arctic. There are lots of things where we, and, and of course, Syria and the Middle East, lots of things where we have to do business. So he's got to have a business-like relationship, which is, of course, what he prides himself in, but at the same time, not, not uh, let Putin off the hook in regard to his aggression against Ukraine. 
Professor, I, I love what you wrote. Forget soft power. The U.S. risks losing hard power, right? I mean, if they're retrenching, if they're becoming much more inward looking, you could also see the Chinese, uh, you know, forcing the rest of the world to adopt the renminbi as a reserve currency. Do you think there's a real possibility that four years from now, the U.S. loses real power? I doubt that you're going to see the renminbi as the reserve currency. You have to have deep and flexible capital markets and a real rule of law before a currency becomes a dominant reserve currency. Uh, China's a long way from that. Uh, and in terms of a hard military power, Trump has said that he <coughs> is going to invest in that area. So I think uh, we're actually likely to lose more in the terms of soft power uh, people who want to follow our values because of the rhetoric we're using, right. I doubt we're going to lose a lot in hard power, either right. economic or military capability. Right. Professor, what are your values? Are, are the values under this presidency going to be the well, same as they were 10 years ago? I, I believe in democracy. I believe in uh, tolerance toward people, a certain openness. Uh, and those are... <coughs> issues which have been questioned in uh, uh, in the campaign. I hope that uh, that the president-elect is going to reaffirm them, as many right. people have urged him to do. Professor Nye, you have a chapter in your classic book, Coping with Interdependence. Help us here with President Trump and how he needs to cope with a new Westphalian world, how he needs to quote, uh, cope with, as Fareed Zakaria says, a hub-and-spoke system. There's a new calculus here. How does a president cope with that? Well, it, well uh, for 70 years since Harry Truman's day, the United States has <clears throat> had a system of alliances which has provided stability and security, and every market requires a political framework of security for itself for it to flourish. And if Trump undercuts those alliances, then you're going to see the spillover into the uh, prospects for markets and growth. Uh, I think if you look at his initial statements since the last week's election, uh, he's tended to be reaffirming on those alliances. He complains about NATO not paying enough for its own defense, but so did previous presidents. And right. he has at least uh, so far authorized the view that uh, we will defend the NATO partners. Yeah. This is what we love about Bloomberg surveillance. Joseph Nye with us uh, and also joining us today. Jim O'Neill, of course, with his service to Goldman Sachs and then to the United Kingdom. Uh, Mr. O'Neill, you hear Professor Nye there talking about interdependence yeah. and the new calculus. Help me here with how the United Kingdom fits into a new Trump foreign policy. So, Nigel Farage, I believe, is stepping in on this debate. Uh, it's great to be on the same uh <laughs> session as, the, as somebody like Joe so I had the pleasure of chatting to him about the, the brick world in the past. So I find my mind thinking that this right. is just the whole Trump development is a further step on the path to an increasingly complex world. And a couple of other things that you know, for the UK, and I think you've seen the Chancellor articulate it reasonably well, at the, we just had the so-called uh, economic and functional dialogue with China. And he was pretty clear because he was quizzed directly about that as the, you know, the number one finance guy mm -hmm. in this country. We have to, uh, we're a very small open country, and especially post-Brexit, we have to have as good a relationships with the U.S. as we can. But we have to be probably even more on the front foot with right. some of these newer well, help, guys help like China. Help our U.S. audience here. Does Nigel right. Farage help with that conversation? 
or is he an obstructionist? <laughs> you know, that is, that is something for the, the tactics of the policymakers to focus on. What, it, what is really important for the underlying and long-term health of the UK, we need to be on the front foot with the likes of a China, despite some of the obvious challenges that creates, because we, we need to be in the centre of global trade flows more than right. we have successfully been in the past and we have to remain in the center of global capital flows mm. and whilst that raises some challenges for us as we saw uh, right. in things I was involved in with policy we were but one of the earliest participants in the Asian Infrastructure Bank yeah. I was there for the right. signing but of Jim, it you, you we know have to China do these things. like no other does antagonizing yeah. or playing tough guy with China work Listen, I'll go back to what I said about the dollar. I remember all this stuff in the early 80s about okay. be beating up on Japan. And, it, you know, it, okay. it, it never really happened. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Let me bring in now Charles Weiplotz, Professor of International Economics at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies uh, in Geneva on a day when President Obama is speaking about democracy in Athens, preparing to head uh, to Germany after that uh, to meet with the, the Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel. Let's start in France. We're reaching you in France today, Professor Weiplotz. Uh, Emmanuel Macron's uh, declaring his candidacy uh, in France this morning. What does that say to you about what's going on in France, indeed what's going on in Europe, him declaring his candidacy? Well, uh, generally in Europe, as you know, there is uh, also a Trump-like phenomenon happening. Uh, all sorts of uh, strange uh, populists are uh, climbing in public opinion polls. Uh, next month, uh, we have a referendum in Italy that can turn ugly. And then next year, we have elections in France. So th th there is plenty to worry about. Charles Plotz, it's wonderful to speak to you today. We spoke with Paul DeGuerre yesterday. And so much of this is about clearing the markets and how your Europe is behind. What is the urgency of Europe clearing their markets to move forward to get to U.S.-like growth? Well, the, the problem with Europe is that it's a large number of countries and everyone has its share of trouble. Uh, so uh, today, uh, President Obama is in Greece, which is a very, very troubled country. Uh, interestingly, he's been calling for uh, debt restructuring, public debt restructuring in Greece. He's absolutely right, but the others don't want. And his next trip to Germany, he might raise the issue uh, with uh, with Chan uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel. He will be told no way. Uh, so that's one issue. Um, but, you know, if you think about my own country, France, uh, the labor market is pretty much in a mess. Uh, the government is huge uh, and has been running a deficit since 1973. 
so uh, the, the list of things that have to be done in every country is pretty well known. Uh, what's missing is the politicians' readiness to do that. And I think when they watch what's happening in the U.S., uh, they are even less willing to tackle any of the real issues. How are they hearing what President Obama has to say on, on this trip in light of what happened here in the U.S. Uh, last week? How is his message being interpreted, do you think? Well, it's a goodbye message. Uh, people in Europe like the Obama way more than the Americans, I think. Uh, and uh, they are sad to see him go, and they are sad to see him uh, being replaced by uh, Trump. Uh, they are very worried about that, by the way. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, when he goes and makes uh, great speeches about democracy and all of that, uh, that's beautiful, but everybody knows that. Everybody knows that democracy is a very complex thing to make work. And at the time when uh, the population in Europe, pretty much like in the U.S., uh, a significant segment of the population is really upset about what has been their lot for the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, it's very, very, very hard to think about good outcomes. Charles Weiplot's with us, of course. He is, uh, he is joining us by phone from, from France. It's great to have you with us uh, again here. Let's talk a little bit about productivity. We're focused here on manufacturing in the U.S., but when you look at it more broadly, when you look at the state of manufacturing globally, what do you see? Well, we, we had a major slowdown in productivity for the last uh, 15, 20 years. Uh, one reason is that industry is, uh, is shrinking and services are increasing, and services are typically low productivity uh, gains or zero productivity gains. Uh, so this shifting production in production pattern through the developed world is, uh, is a major source of low productivity gains. <clears throat> Is it because there's too much money sloshing around? Is it just we're paying the price of capital deepening, of just overinvestment? has been overinvestment, uh, quite to the contrary, uh, since the, the crisis in 2008, investment has been extremely low, extremely depressed. Uh, there are many discussions about why. Uh, I tend to believe that the poor overall growth pattern in a developed country has discouraged firms from, in, from investing, and that's uh, weighing on productivity gains, you, you're right. When you, when you look at the complement of what the ECB is considering when it meets at the beginning of December, how, how heavily does productivity weigh when they're looking at the data? Uh, I don't think they are very worried about that. Uh, they, maybe they should. Uh, but I think they are, they are very worried uh, that inflation is stuck uh, not far from zero. Uh, and has been there for the last uh, three years, uh, and uh, therefore uh, they, they want to keep right. up growth, but that's not uh, happening easily. Uh, Charles White Plotz, with a shout-out to John Silvia of, uh, of Wells Fargo, with your work, Professor White Plotz, on labor mobility, is we have economic slowdown, disinflation, we become rigid as a society. How critical is that idea, that dream of moving to a new place? How does that fold into European and, for that matter, U.S. economics? Well, uh, we, we have in most European countries very rigid markets. So it's not only that people don't move from one country to another. They don't even move 
uh, within their own countries, or they move much less than the U.S. worker used to to move. Uh, so that's that's been uh, that's been known for for decades uh, before we started the monetary union, uh, and it was clear that this was one of the uh, drawbacks of having a, a common currency. Um, but to me, that's, that's not the most important issue. To, to me, the most important issue is that many, in many countries, labor markets are frozen. Uh, it's hard to fire people, so firms don't hire. Uh, there are in some countries, uh, minimum wages are very high, so they are discouraging employment uh, of non-qualified workers. Uh, dismissals are very difficult, very costly and legally uncertain, and so on and so forth. So we, the, the, the problem really is at the national level uh, that uh, these labor markets just mm-hmm. don't function and, and well, they generate their machinery to create unemployment. I don't know if you thought about this, but if we get Trump inflation, if we get some form of stimulus and reflation within the United States, do we just presume economic growth that raises wages? Or is there the real risk here, stag wage inflation, where we've got inflation with no real wage increase. Well, as you know, the, the mystery is why uh, inflation, wage inflation is not uh, higher in the U.S., given that uh, the unemployment rate is very low. There are, there are continuous debates about why it is the case. Uh, I think the, uh, the silver lining of Trump is that uh, if he does it, uh, he might uh, uh, pump up government spending on infrastructure, increase the deficit. That would be good news for the world over because it would mean uh, more growth in the U.S., a return of inflation in the U.S. Uh, We all need to see some inflation up from the zero uh, levels we have had. So there is a little bit of silver lining out there, depending on what uh, the next president will do or not do. Charles Weiplitz, we talk about a a pause here in the U.S. uh, among policymakers as they wait to see what kind of infrastructure package uh, President-elect Donald Trump will be able to get through the Congress and and how that might affect monetary policy. How do you you see that playing out in in Europe, a a similar sort of wait-and-see approach? Yeah, everybody is uh, is mesmerized uh, by the political situation in the U.S., uh, a great number of economists, at least, had been calling for the U.S. to pump up uh, public investment in infrastructure. But uh, as we know, Obama had exactly zero chance uh, of passing that through Congress. Uh, I am not sure uh, that uh, Trump will be able to do much better with his Congress, uh, but I certainly wish him good luck. You mentioned this a moment ago. Our colleague Tracy Alloway tweeting out a, a timetable from J.P. Morgan here of, of what electoral events we will have here in 2017 uh, in Europe, ranging from primaries in France to the Italian referendum to an Austrian presidential election, a German presidential election, and general elections in the Netherlands. It's a busy year, 2017. Uh, what does Europe look like after that year is done? Oh, God. Uh, that's a scary question. <laughs> Uh, uh, it's likely that the Austrians will elect uh, a Nazi uh, president. Uh, that wouldn't be the first time. They, they already did it uh, 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, in the Netherlands, there is a very virulent, uh, far-right, uh, reasonably racist uh, party, which is going up and up and up. 
in uh, in Germany, well, maybe Merkel will still uh, be the miraculous uh, chancellor she has been and, and win it. Uh, and in Germany, as you in France, as you may know, there is a serious challenge from right. the far right. Um, Marine Le Pen. I personally don't believe she has any chance, but I also believe Trump mm-hmm. had the zero chance, so <laughs> I wouldn't uh, bet on it. Yeah, well, we yeah you had a lot of company in that, <laughs> Professor Y. Plutz. Thank you so much with the Graduate Institute, Geneva. David, our next guest, I'm thrilled he's on because we we have not been good about commodities. We are in the surveillance commodity timeout chair. <laughs> Amid the blur that you described, Tom, we have not talked enough about oil and, and other commodities, as you say. I'm, I'm pleased to bring in Dane Davis now. He is a commodities analyst at Barclays. As I look at oil here, Brent at 4667, WTI at 4540. Dane, great to have you with us. <clears throat> Glad to be here. Let's start with, with the big question here. We, we, we've seen what's happened in the equities market since Donald Trump was elected. What have we seen in the, in the commodity space broadly? What kind of moves have we seen? Well, to put it quite shortly, uh, Donald Trump, through his election, has made metals great again. Uh, and I'm being cheeky here, but, but he has not, a hat, Tom. It says that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what we've seen is a massive rally uh, across the entire complex of metals. Um, and it's, it's, it's wide ranging. It's not just iron ore, uh, it's steel, it's copper, it's zinc, and the like. Now, this rally has started to peter out recently, but uh, since its election, there's just been a, a massive increase in the metals complex. Yeah, looking at the, the timing here, what do, you, what do you make of it? How, how closely can you tie these two things to? together. Obviously, investors placing a big bet here on the fact that Donald Trump has said he wants to get an infrastructure bill through through Congress that could have an effect on metals prices. Uh, do you draw the correlation that closely? Well, I think when it comes to commodities, you have to be careful of disentangling uh, causal relationships, right? I, I think it's very easy for me to come on here and say, yep, Donald Trump, it's all him. But in actuality, I think a closer look at the data and the price movement shows that the prices for the metals complex in particular, they were rallying before the election <clears throat> of Donald Trump. Now, yeah. that tells me, given that no, very few people thought he was able to win, that it's not a Donald Trump thing. What I think is going on here is I think that this is a China story. Uh, so the Chinese economy has actually come in quite strongly okay. in 2016. And I think that's leading to a rally in commodities. Dan, I've got a copper chart which shows a rally, and really it's through 2016, range bound, and then up we go uh, with the recent news. All of that's great. I'll put out the copper chart, folks, out on Twitter under B Surveillance. Uh, but is it a breakout of what is a five-year-old bear market? I don't see it technically. Is it? We don't know yet. Uh, copper has Fair. been really interesting. In, in, in the, you identified something I think that's quite important. The other metals were rallying earlier into this year, yet copper was lagging. And if you believe the Dr. Copper thesis, whereas copper is the best tracker for the macro economy, that tells you something. That tells you that in 2016, we had a global economy that was still stuck in mediocre growth, and we had a Chinese economy uh, that was returning to growth, and it was growing, but yet the market wasn't really certain about it. I think as we go forward, I would say follow the copper price uh, among all the metals, because that's going to tell you what's going on. The Chinese property market has been reheated. That is what's triggered the iron ore rise. It triggered the steel rise, and now it's starting to trigger the other metals to increase. If that property market, though, shows signs of slowing down, 
We yeah. could be back where we were at the beginning of this year. Uh, it's it's a rally built on very tenuous grounds. Agreed. I strongly agree with that. And I just, I, you know, I, I just want to frame through the Barclays lens and all the different people you've got telling you what to do. You are not calling this a commodity breakout. I want to be clear on that. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely clear. I think that there's still a lot that we haven't yet determined. I think the property market within China, I think that's number one. Number two, returning to Trump is, you know, there's a lot of hype about his infrastructure plans. We don't yet know what those infrastructure plans will be. Moreover, the market is focusing, I think, on the good things about the Trump's plan, but less on the bad things or the less desirable things. For example, if Trump threatens the global trade order, that's going to have knock-on effects in the world's largest market for metals consumption, China. I mean, you can imagine a trade war would have uh, terrible effects onto the Chinese economy. It could also affect other emerging markets such as Mexico and Brazil. So whereas we might see a gain in metals consumption in the U.S., uh, we could see a fall in other markets, and you could actually have a net decline. Now, that's not what we're calling for, but that's a possibility and something to keep in mind as we cut through the euphoria that we've been seeing. Yeah, Dane Davis, in the latest Barclays commodity note, you, you described that tension uh, very well. I'll let Tom use his standard caveat here about respecting the copyright of the guests, but check check out the note if if you can. Seek it out from, from Barclays. You mentioned the, the Chinese property market. What does uh, you know, what, what does Chinese policy look like right now when it comes to economic stimulus? Great question. So I think it's important to go back to 2015. In 2015, there were very real concerns of a hard landing. I talked to a lot of clients that were concerned that the Chinese economy would actually go negative. Uh, we were in a very different environment. Automobile production was down in the first nine months of the year in 2015. The real estate market was showing severe signs of weakness. Then what the Chinese did in the very beginning of this year is uh, they – played a song with a familiar tune. They essentially loosened up their credit bubble. Uh, they loosened up credit standards, loaning standards, and they allowed people to invest and buy homes. Now, this had the very positive effect in the short term of 2016 of boosting construction. Um, but as we start to look into the forward, it, it, there's a real question here of how many times can you stimulate your way to growth? How many times can you reheat the property market? I think it's likely that it cools as we go into 17 and 18. And moreover, I think that there's the very hard limit of uh, demography. You know, the Chinese population is aging. Uh, a lot of the growth is already behind it in terms of its population bubble. So that puts another hard limit on the property market. Dane, I'm looking at trade figures here, trade figures for October, Chinese trade figures, and they look disappointing to me. Uh, how much of a red flag is that for you? Uh, I think you need more than one data point to make a trend. Uh, the weakness in October, I think it is concerning, but it's not yet concerning enough, and it's not yet confirmed by <clears throat> more trade uh, data points to be a worrying trend. But I think it is something that goes back to my key thesis here is let's hold up. You know, we've seen this massive rally in copper going from 208 to 250. Uh, let's just recheck fundamentals, look at what the data is actually telling us and not what, yeah. you know, we might think may happen in the future. <clears throat> Help me with the esoterics. I, I, you know, I've spent too much money in London. Can I make it back in zinc? I uh, mean, we don't talk enough on this show, David Gura. About zinc. We, we, yeah, we definitely do. And there's a reason, there's a reason for that. You, you know, I, I think that's a, that is a very esoteric question. And here would be my answer to you. I think that we're in a new era of commodities. And so when you look at something like copper or zinc or nickel or that, 
it's no longer the rising China lifts all boats. I think that the price outlook for various commodities, zinc included, copper included, iron ore, will be increasingly determined by supply fundamentals. Uh, look for those markets which have very tight supply fundamentals, which are facing problems in getting production into, into the market, uh, which are facing the threat of resource nationalism. Those commodities, I think, are going to be your best chance going forward. The other commodities, though, that have new supply coming online in 15, 16, uh, new supply coming online in the future, iron ore, I think, is a good example of this. I think those commodities are the most uh, pressure as we move forward. I uh, want to get to oil here in, in, in just a minute, but maybe one more more question here about uh, about metals. What are we seeing in terms of, of disruption uh, when it comes to demand for copper? Uh, I, I know that there were uh, strikes in Indonesia and and, and uh, labor disputes in Peru. These things having an effect on the price of copper? Or are they pretty at the margins? I think they do have a psychological effect on the price of copper. So uh, you're right. We've been having it's been a quiet year so far, but then in this third quarter, going into the fourth quarter, disruption started to suddenly tick up. Uh, there were storms in Australia that knocked out several copper mines. There were labor disputes in Indonesia at the Grassberg mine. Uh, there's been issues with the Philippines, uh, and there they have a very new regulatory climate. So there's been more disruptions to production in copper and in other metals. But I think that doesn't really necessarily affect the balances today. I, I think that does, mm. though, give you a psychological argument for higher prices. Whether or not it actually is impacting yeah. the true balances, it's hard to determine. <clears throat> but I think it does give you know a market boost. And Dane Davis with his fundamentals on uh, metals and, of course, his work with Michael Cohen and others at Barclays on oil as well. Well, Dane Davis with us with Barclays. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're lucky, folks, and that Dane Davis – well, he like deals in the land of rebar, and copper, and palladium. <laughs> Down the hall is Michael Cohen, Warren Russell, Miswin Mahesh. They look at oil. Help us here, Dane. And this is within the microeconomics of commodities. I mean, like aluminum is aluminum, and it's totally different. There's fewer barriers to entry, et cetera, than copper. What's your interpretation of oil microeconomics right now? Is it a whole new terrain because of U.S. fracking where the rules that guys like you use are forever changed? Well, I think the way to address this is to look at the supply side. And let's do some comparisons here. Let's talk about oil and let's talk about natural gas and copper. For copper, we haven't really had any revolutions in the production of copper mining since the 1980s. Uh, in the 1980s, they created a new process using various acids where they could extract copper from deposits that were previously uneconomical. But since then, really, if you want to get copper today, it's the same way you got copper 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Uh, you dig a massive pit in the ground and uh, you, you just mine it out. Now, when we talk about natural gas or if we talk about oil, we've seen massive revolutions on the supply side for both of those commodities. And so when I, I think when you look at prices today and you look at trying to understand price action, I think it's important to understand we're in a new world with, say, natural gas production. You know, I'm from Ohio, northeast Ohio, and I've witnessed firsthand the, uh, the revolution that we've seen thanks to uh, shale gas technologies and the transformation of the oh, Ohio uh, and Pennsylvania uh, economies. 
I thought you were going to say the Cleveland Indians. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, my oh, father's actually me. a Yankees fan, so I uh, – no, no. We're Yankees fans in the Davis household. So um, he, needs, he needs protection in Ohio. He does. He does. Right? No, but, but in oil, it's the same thing too. I mean if you go back to 2007 and 2008, there were the concerns of peak oil. And that, which was once a fringe theory, was seriously being discussed in the mainstream. And then we've had the uh, – tight oil in the U.S. revolutionized the market. So when we look at the microeconomics of commodities, whether it's oil, natural gas, copper, some of the metals, it's important to keep in mind, how are these commodities brought to the market? And have there been any technological innovations in bringing those commodities to the market? Dan Davis, I'm looking at Brent here, 46.52 a barrel. Let's look at that through the prism of this meeting taking place in Vienna at the end of the month. Uh, Is optimism based into that price or pessimism? Well, I, you know, I think when it comes to OPEC, I, I think the key thing here is that you have to separate rhetoric from reality. And, it, you know, th- there's two questions here. One, whether or not OPEC comes to an agreement. And then the second question is, are they actually able to carry through any agreements that they reach, right? So we are in a new world. Going back to what I just said with regards to oil supply, it's no longer the situation that we found ourselves uh, in the 1970s or 1980s. There's new ways to get oil to the market, and there's new areas where we get oil to the market. And so when you have an economics, going back to microeconomics, when you have an organization, a cartel, which controls supply, they already have a difficult time in you know, rationing supply among the different producers. There's strong incentives to cheat. But when you have a market when that cartel has a declining share of overall output, the incentives become that much more stronger. So I think the real question is, and not, not to avoid your question, is are they able to enforce any agreements yeah. that they come to? Dane, one last question. I want to revisit the arch call, which is the China commodity boom, the boom of the last X number of years. Are we back on the track of what has been well over a half century of just general commodity deflation due to technological progress and due to improved processes worldwide? Are we back to the normal? Well, I'm going to sound like an economist here and give a classic economist answer. (laughs) It depends. It depends. It depends on the commodity. Uh, Look, I think for something like uh, copper or zinc or that, where the supply side is constrained, I think that you, you, uh, you might not see strong deflation. But for other commodities where we've seen technological revolutions, you might. And I think, too, the demand outlook for commodities are very different. If you take aluminum and copper, I was just in London uh, for LME Week. The outlook for aluminum is is very, very bright. Uh, There's this substitution effect. We're using aluminum Mm -hmm. in vehicles. We're using aluminum in our iPhones and our our laptops and the like. So the demand growth there looks to be pretty strong. Copper, surprisingly, despite being the macro metal, the demand outlook isn't that great. You're looking at 1.5 to 2% growth annually per year. So it all depends on you know the particulars of each commodity. I think that's the key right. message. Look at each commodity on its own. Okay. Don't view it as an asset class. Dane Davis, thank you so much with Barclays. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.